The word of our Lord from the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write these, this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit, to receive from your word what you have for us this morning. Give us ears to hear, we pray. Give us eyes to see, we pray. Give us hearts that are receptive to your word. Holy Spirit, would you please move among us? Would you please minister to our hearts, to our minds? Would you please call us deeper into the love of the Father, deeper into the grace of of Jesus the Son, deeper into fellowship with you, the Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. In just a few moments, as we receive Holy Communion, we will declare to one another the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, he has mentioned 
the idea of mystery multiple times. And he mentions it here again in chapter 4. And you remember that early on in chapter 1, he declared that the mystery is Christ in you. The hope of glory. He's mentioned also that the mystery is about Christ being unveiled to the world. That salvation is available to all nations. When we hear Gentiles, we think those outside Israel, but it literally just means the nations. And yes, it's about the nations beyond Israel. But the mystery hidden for all the ages revealed now in the apostolic age, in the proclamation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as King of all glory is that God, through His Son Jesus, wants to dwell in your life, in your heart, in the church, and that that invitation is available to all the world. What a mystery that has been revealed. But here in chapter 4, verse 3 of chapter 4, Paul says it's on account of this mystery, on account of being faithful in proclaiming this mystery, that he himself, the Apostle Paul, is now imprisoned. And we know that the Apostle Paul's life was filled with hardship. He recounts it uh, elsewhere, especially in his letters to the Corinthians. But here now, as Paul is penning this letter, At the end, he'll say, I sign this with my very own hand. Remember my chains. He is imprisoned on account of this great mystery that Christ has come to redeem the whole world and that he lives within our hearts by faith. These last few weeks, we've been walking through this series, taking a chapter at a time. The Christian Faith 101, the Christian Faith 201, the Christian Faith 301, and now this morning, the Christian Faith 401. And it's interesting in my mind how how Colossians as an epistle develops. It begins with so much deep, rich theology about what God the Father has done to redeem us in His Son, who is the express image of of the Father and all the fullness of divine life and deity dwell in the Son. That He is the one who then wants to dwell within us as the mystery of God revealed to the world. And then we moved through chapter 2 where Paul calls the Colossian believers to remain utterly and only faithful to Jesus to not try to add something else to their faith in Christ, not Christ and politics, not Christ and mysticism, not Christ and legalism, but simply faithful obedience to Jesus Himself and Him only. And then last week, we got to chapter 3. The Christian Faith 301. And there... I noted last week, well, I I raised the question, was chapter 3 just a list of kind of don'ts and do's? Because he says an awful lot of things that we ought not to do, that ought not be a part of us, that we ought to put to death in our lives, that we ought to get rid of our lives completely and altogether. And then he talks about what ought to characterize our lives. But you remember, 
I noted that no, chapter 3 is not just a list of don'ts and do's. He's not just trying to teach us how to buck up and live faithfully to Jesus. But instead, chapter 3 is presented to us as a picture of what interacting with grace looks like. And as a picture of what interacting with grace looks like, chapter 3 serves as a call to live accordingly, an invitation to live as the new humanity created in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. After all, we have died with him in baptism, and we have been raised with him to new life. Just this morning, I received a text from old Pastor Lane, and uh, he shared he shared in that text, and it goes out to a bunch of folks. Might have been some of you in here that that also saw that text. But uh, a, a quote from Oswald Chambers: "Christianity is not consistency to conscience or convictions. Christianity is being true to Jesus Christ." And that fits so well with what I mentioned last week about chapter 3. That's precisely what chapter 3 was about. It is precisely what chapter 3 called us to. Being true to Jesus Christ. And here's what it looks like. So chapter 3 is what it looks like to live out chapter 2 in light of chapter 1. God has redeemed us in His Son. Therefore, remain faithful to the Son completely and utterly. And here's how that looks in real life, in all of our relations. And then we get to chapter 4. And I mentioned a few weeks ago that the way the chapters are divided up, it's not original in the, uh, in the Greek text or in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew or Aramaic. Um, however, However, centuries and centuries after the scriptures were written, we've imposed these chapters and it, it, it helps us break up like a longer letter into you know, four main sections. But here, when you get to verse one, you realize, man, these, these chapter divisions are kind of clunky because verse one of chapter four is obviously a continuation of the final thoughts of chapter three. Do you notice that? Right in the middle, he just begins. Middle of a thought, bastards. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. But, but notice that it does sort of serve as a, kind of a segue into, into what's going on here in chapter 4. It serves as a sort of summative commentary on how Christ has subverted, as we mentioned last week, the conventional power structures of this world. That those with power and those with might ought to be able to do and probably ought to do whatever they want to those who are weaker and lesser and more dependent than they are. But right here, as he begins to wrap up this epistle, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. And then he does what we might call Put the fear of God in them, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You are aware of this. You will be held accountable. You will answer for how you have used and misused and abused your power. 
Notice in verse 9, he then mentions one particular bondservant by name, Onesimus. And if you're wondering, how do I recognize that name? You recognize it from a smaller book, Philemon. Onesimus was a bondservant of a man named Philemon. And Philemon's all about how the Apostle Paul has received Onesimus as a son in the faith and has discipled him. And Onesimus at some point in the past had run away from his earthly master, Philemon. And Paul says, I'm sending him back to you. And if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. But don't forget how much you owe me. It's not talking about finances. He's talking about how much you owe me because of how your life has been put back together in Christ. But when the Apostle Paul is sending Onesimus back, he tells Philemon, receive him back, not as a bondservant, but as a brother, as a brother in Christ. He is subverting the power structures of the ancient world. And here, he appeals to the whole congregation. He does not mention Philemon by name. We'll get to that here here shortly. But to the whole congregation, he says, Onesimus is being sent back to you. He is one of you. He'll mention elsewhere a little bit later, someone else who is one of you. But he says, he is one of you. Receive him as your brother. What's Paul getting at here? He's getting at this quite simply. All power belongs to our master in heaven. All power belongs to the father who has shared that with his eternal son. It is back to chapter 1. It is from Him that all powers and principalities and dominions and authorities get their power and their authority. And so all power is ultimately His. And so the warning then is you'd better not misuse it. Whatever power you've got, whatever strength you've got over others, you'd better not misuse it. Whether you're the dad going back to chapter 3, whether you're the mom going back to chapter 3, whether you're the husband of chapter 3, whether you're the wife of chapter 3. We've all got ways of wielding power in our relationships. Also going back to chapter 3, whether you're the boss or the employee, the master or the servant. Whether you're the constituent or even the president, the Apostle Paul calls all of us to the accountable and responsible use of whatever power we have in life, knowing that we have a master in heaven before whom we will ultimately and finally give an account. He calls them, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. As, as I've mentioned over and over again, um, not just as we've walked through Colossians, but in 
months past and whatnot, you cannot escape the mandate and the call toward thankfulness and the expression of that thankfulness in thanksgiving, especially in the epistles of Paul in the New Testament. He then ends the letter, the final verse of chapter 4, with a simple benediction. A simple prayer of blessing over their lives. Grace be with you. Mentioned directly only three times in the epistle, grace is really what the whole thing is about. It's what the whole New Testament is about. And truly, it's what the whole story of Scripture is all about. The grace of God. The self-givingness of God. Prayer is, as he calls them to prayer, prayer is not just a means of grace. It is that. It is a way in which we interact with God's grace. It's one of the ways that we respond to His grace. John Wesley talked of prayer as the breathing in of grace and the breathing out of prayer and praise. We're interacting with God and His grace as we pray. And so prayer is not just one way. It's not, we often approach it as kind of a one-way thing. We come to God and we've got a list of things we want to cover and we, we start off talking and we don't stop talking until we say amen. But prayer truly is a dynamic communication. I think it was Dennis Kinlaw who said, when we enter into prayer, we're entering in on a conversation that is already happening in eternity. We're entering into the activity of, that we read about in the early chapters of the book of the Revelation. But prayer is not just a means of grace. It is also for us a picture of grace. It's what the way of grace looks like. Interacting with the life of God. Speaking to and being spoken to. Notice in verse 12, the Apostle Paul mentions that Epaphras, that's their pastor, he says, I'm sending also back Epaphras. It's through Epaphras that the Apostle Paul has come to know about what the Lord is doing in Colossae because he tells them, frankly, I've never met you, but I've heard all about you. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of his saints. But he, what he says about Epaphras is that he is in a perpetual struggle for you, the Colossians, in prayer. How often does our prayer life look like a struggle? How often does our prayer life look like us pleading with God, begging of God, to work, to move, to minister, to open hearts, to soften the flesh of the heart. But he says of Epaphras, their pastor, he is one of you. Not only is Onesimus the bondservant who ran away, the bondservant who is being sent back as a brother, not only is he one of you, but also your pastor, Epaphras, is one of you. 
the, the biblical idea of the pastor is not someone who's elite, not someone who is um, uniquely and, and, and unrelatably different from the congregation, but actually one who rises up from within the congregation to stand before the congregation. He is one of you and he is praying for you. So the Apostle Paul invites them to join in that dynamic of prayer. Notice as the Apostle Paul is talking about how they can be praying for him and also how he is actively praying for them. Notice the move of the gospel. The gospel is going deep and it's going wide. He calls them to prayer in his behalf while he's in prison, spreading the news of the gospel, spreading the mystery of Christ, sharing the good news of his kingdom. The gospel is moving out deep, deeper into the heart of the Roman world, deeper into the heart of the empire. It's moving wide. But it's also moving deep. He calls them and assures them of his prayer in their behalf while they're in their own context of ministry. He's in prison and they're in their communities. And he calls them to walk in wisdom toward those outside, making the best use of the time or redeeming the time, I think as the King James calls it. I love that phrase, redeeming the time, because it kind of grabs your attention. But walk in wisdom. There's a world out there watching. There is a world out there looking. There is a world out there that needs to be awakened to the good news of the kingdom and therefore walk wisely before them and speak into their lives as you have opportunity. Earn the right. Notice. He says, so that you might know how you ought to answer each one. But what does the answer imply? An answer implies a question. So here he's not talking about standing out on the street corner shouting down people. He's not talking about, that that happened to me once back when I was a youth pastor. Austin, you got it easy. Man, one time I'm walking with my sister and with Blair Chandler, of all people, a girl in my youth group, and I'm walking through Atlanta, and, uh, and this street preacher shouts out to me with a megaphone. He says, lose one of them, buddy. It's a dead-end road. <laughs> like, I'm just rolling down the street. I got my two girls. It's my sister and a girl in my youth group. <laughs> Notice, that guy that shouted at me, he was not answering anything. I didn't ask him anything. I didn't open up my life to him and say, hey, speak to me the words of the gospel. Tell me how, you know, having a sister and a girl in my youth group is a dead-end road. There was no question. But the answer, to answer, implies having been asked. It implies the question. And so he's calling them as they walk in wisdom toward outsiders. To create opportunities in their lives to be asked. Reminds me of Peter's instruction of being prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in you. 
Are we close enough to others outside of this context that they will ask us about our church life? That they will ask us about what makes us different? That they will ask us about our faith? Do we ever have people ask us, hey, when life is spinning out of control, what like grounds you? It, it kind of remi- reminds me of, uh, of all things of um, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. You remember in the hallway, in the hallway, Clark is hanging out and he's showing his buddy the, the picture of the pool that he's put a deposit on and, and the, 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 the layout of it or whatever. And his buddy says, man, you're like the last family man. The fact that he could comment that about Clark Griswold I didn't plan on talking about Clark Griswold this morning, but it just works. The fact that he could even comment that about him tells him he, tells us he knew something about him. He knew enough about him to know, man, you're a real family guy. Look at you, look at you spending your bonus that you've not even gotten yet. Little do you know it's going to be, you know, a bunch of jars of jelly each month month for the next twelve months. The gift that keeps on giving all year round. He knew enough about him his co-worker, to comment on his family life and the way his priorities revolve around his wife and kids. Interesting. We often keep everybody in our lives, co-workers, next-door neighbors, people we shop around, people that we sports with, people that we talk to every single month at the same restaurant. We often keep them at such a distance they cannot get close. They cannot know anything about us. Therefore, they will ask nothing about us. They've got no questions. Live in such a way that you will know how to answer each one. I promise, I promise we're almost through. But as we, as we reflect on this final chapter... I do want to highlight some things. I mentioned that grace is what the whole epistle is about. It's what the whole New Testament is about. It's what the whole book of the Bible is about. I do want to notice or or highlight a few things that we learn about grace that we see pictured here in chapter 4. It's so easy for us to get to chapter 4 and think, okay, he's wrapping things up. And so it may have some interesting nuggets in it, but really he's just kind of tying up loose ends. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is he is describing the life of a congregation. And he's describing the life of not just a a single congregation, but even how others throughout the church interact with it. Because he's mentioned the names of people like Demas and Luke and and, and others. If, If Barnabas comes to you, Mark's cousin, make sure... Or no, Mark comes to you, Barnabas's cousin, make sure you receive him warmly. But he's describing this inner life of the congregation, which is characterized by the life and the way of grace. And what we see is that grace is dynamic. In its very essence, it is dynamic. Grace is the shared life of the Father. The Father sharing His life with the Son and the Spirit. They sharing their lives back in response to the Father. It is dynamic and, it, and, 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 and is a picture of 
God's relationship, the triune God's relationship to his creation, that he creates something other than himself. The father's relationship to the family, his creation. In fact, in Ephesians, uh, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, he says that it is the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named because the father gives himself. Grace is dynamic. It's dynamic in the life of the church, particularly as Christ shares his life, the life of the father that he receives from the father by the spirit with the church. He is the head. We are the body. And you remember earlier in Colossians, Paul says that all of the joints and ligaments and every bit of it receives its nourishment from the head. As husband of the bride, again, we've got another picture of the dynamism of grace. Grace is dynamic. But grace is also contagious. We've got a lot of sickness in our congregation, as I mentioned earlier. But the ability, and it's interesting, in a small congregation, how quickly and how like thoroughly sickness will travel. You probably remember I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago, I was lamenting how sick everybody is. And man, I, you know, and Lindsay said, you know, that says something good about our congregation. It says we're spending enough time together to actually pass germs. That's, that's, that's a pretty good thing. It's pretty good commentary. You know, the ability to pass along contagions is not just a a biological liability. Well, if you're around them and they got the flu, you're probably going to catch it as well. It's also a spiritual feature. Christ, the head, from whom the whole church derives its life. Attach yourself to Jesus. Spend time with Him through faith and you enter into His new humanity which we notice in chapters 2 and 3. You start to live like Him as His Spirit fills your life with His holy and holifying presence. But there's something else as well. Get around others who are interacting with grace, others who are reading the Scriptures, others who are struggling in prayer, others who are giving themselves away in self-giving love to their neighbors. Others who are gathering together for worship. Get around others who are interacting with grace. And before you know it, you've started interacting with grace in new ways. In deeper ways. In wider ways. I'm convinced this is, this is why Satan and his minions try to keep us from church. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves, as is the manner of some. But assemble together all the more as you see the day of Christ's return approaching. We detach ourselves from one another. And before long, we detach ourselves from Christ, the head of the body. I obviously don't want to shame anybody to come to church sick. And of course, there are times when life just happens. You get sick and you've got to stay home and rest and recuperate and not pass on the magic to others. And oftentimes, our sickness has got nothing in the world to do with Satan. 
And there are other times when we sabotage our own selves, our own desires, our own interests. And we decide, hey, you know, I'm just going to kind of distance myself and back away from the life of the church. And oftentimes, that might not even have anything to do with Satan. He's content to just let you, let you do your own thing. Not meddle. But then there are times of serious temptation where, with some, where something that's almost ecstatic from us, something outside of ourselves is calling us to just push others away, push the body of Christ away. Grace is dynamic. It is contagious. Grace is responsible. As he's speaking into the inner life of this congregation, as he's calling them to pray for him, as he's assuring them of his prayers on their behalf, as he's noting Onesimus and Epaphras being one of them, their brothers, and yet also being returned to them and serving them, as he's calling them to walk wisely and make, redeem the time, make the most use of the time that they have available toward outsiders. He's calling them to a responsible, a responsible interaction with one another in the life of grace. Where they are responsible for one another and responsible also to one another. We don't like getting called out. And truly, it's, it's possible in calling others out to misuse and abuse the authority that we've been given in one another's lives. But Philemon here is implicitly called out and explicitly called out in the book of the Bible that bears his name. And Archippus here, I haven't mentioned him yet, Paul mentions him by name, calls him out. He does it kind of subtly. He's, he doesn't say, hey, tell that lazy bum to get off his, his duff. He, he doesn't say that. But he does, he does explicitly call him out. Be, you tell him, be sure to fulfill the ministry he's received in the Lord. We've all seen it. We've all heard it. We've seen and we've heard how God has called me to do this. He's urging me to do this. And then we've also seen and heard how time passes and distance gets created. And before you know it, we just forget about what was once seen and heard. Paul won't have any of it. You tell Archippus, be sure to fulfill the ministry you've received in the Lord. He was, he's calling us because grace is dynamic, because grace is contagious, because grace is responsible. He's calling us to responsible accountability to and in grace. I want to urge you. I want to urge you. If you've not made yourself responsible to and therefore accountable to others, someone in your life, Share the rights of intrusion with two or three others in your life. Two or three others. I mean, like literally share it. Like, hey, I want you to be able to ask me what's going on in my heart and my life. 
You start noticing different behaviors in me. You start noticing any points of concern in my life. I want you to ask me about it. I promise you, I promise you, the more we take seriously the responsibility, the contagious nature of, and the dynamic power of grace in community with one another, the the more wildly we will start seeing our own selves walking wisely and giving being given opportunity to give an answer to others. I promise you that. It seems profoundly um, plain in the scriptures. Father, we thank you for each other. We thank you for the opportunity together together. The opportunity to encourage one another, to urge one another, to push one another, to comfort one another, to pray for one another. Lord, we pray that you would continue to minister to us through one another. As we sing, as we pray, as we receive the holy elements of communion, we pray that you would continue moving among us and draw us deeper into the love of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.